Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So a lot of people in official Washington are in private willing to call President Trump a lot of bad names, things like clumsy, incompetent, inept, etc. But when secret cables revealed last weekend that the British ambassador had said those things, Trump got really, really mad, and the ambassador, Kim Derrick, resigned. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to dig into this whole episode. We're going to talk about what it means, what happened, and you know the real context of the U.S.-U.K. relationship. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. Good day, Zach, but you're actually not here. No, that's true. I'm on sunny Martha's Vineyard on vacation with my family, uh, who has graciously lended me a blanket fort to record under. It's a long story. Don't worry about it. Jen, why don't you start off the episode uh, with what a diplomatic cable is, technically, and why the ambassador said such inflammatory things about Trump over one. A diplomatic cable is basically like a memo. Ambassadors send these things all the time. They can be about, like, really specific topics, you know, like, hey, I talked to so-and-so about this trade deal or whatever. But they're also often unvarnished assessments of what's going on in the country that you're posted to, right? So what's the political situation? What is the, the leader of the country like? You know, what's their demeanor? What's the administration like? How do they operate? You know, are they functional? Are they dysfunctional? I mean, you're literally your country's, like, man or woman on the ground in this country. And so you write these, like, very frank, and they're supposed to be secret, cables that you then, like, send back to your home country. And, you know, the the leaders of the country then read that, and they use that to help craft policy and diplomacy. So this is, like, literally, like, a standard part of any diplomat's job is to write these kinds of cables. And privacy and honesty are super important parts of that thing. Hence why he said things like calling Trump, quote unquote, inept and saying, this is not a direct quote, but I'm paraphrasing here, this administration will not ever get more competent or we don't believe that it will. Uh, Now, Alex, this private stuff didn't stay private for as long as it should have. No. uh, In fact, on Sunday, the British tabloid Daily Mail published uh, some of these cables. We don't know who leaked them, but... They basically called uh, the administration inept. That that caused a bit of a shitstorm. Yeah, right? but I mean, they also said some stuff that was even more like specific to Trump himself, which I think was probably a little bit more like right. uh, offensive to Trump, being the way he is, and a bit concerned about his image and how people perceive him. So, like at one point, like Derek, the the ambassador described described Trump as quote radiating insecurity. Trump then proceeded to be really insecure and get really mad. If you want to prove to somebody that you're not insecure, sending out a series of angry tweets that include saying that you don't know this person, that they are not well-liked or well-known, and insulting the current prime minister of the UK, that doesn't suggest that you're super secure in the competency of your leadership. I, so I totally, yeah, that's right, right? Like, There's no question. But I do wonder sort of the politics of it in the sense of, 
these things exist. They are out there. And if Trump doesn't respond in some sort of strong way, which is basic specs, like how does he look? I sort of get the pushback, but the the what like to send those tweets to basically say that he's you know a fool and that no one likes him and that he's just been horrible, despite the fact that Derek has been a long respected British diplomat official, just seems kind of a weird way to go about it. Uh, but the, the key one of these Trump tweets is one in which he says, I am not going to work with this guy. And technically, he didn't kick the ambassador out when he said that, but an ambassador is not worth very much if they cannot meet the head of state of the country they are an ambassador to. So functionally, the president was saying, you're done. And so, in fact... Kim Derrick, this well-respected British ambassador, was forced to resign by the president. Basically. But there's actually like a step in between there that I think is really important to understand because we're going to talk about this a little bit later. So ambassadors don't serve at the pleasure of the president or the, the head of state in the country. They serve at the pleasure of the government of their own country, right? So it isn't actually – I mean, Trump can kick the ambassador out – but he can't say, like, you need a different ambassador. Like, you, you can't do that. They they don't work for you. They work for the British government, right? So when it came down to it, it was like, okay, well, how is the British government going to respond to this brouhaha, right? Because like you said, it is important that the your ambassador on the ground has access and at least a functional relationship with the head of state, right? So it was like, okay, well, Trump is saying he's not going to work with this guy anymore. But at the same time, right, like, this is your guy and it's your country, and, like, the president is insulting him. And, like, not for any reason other than him literally doing his job, the thing you sent him there to do, which is to, like, provide you candid assessments. And so what was interesting is that you had Prime Minister Theresa May come out and say that, like, yeah, well, I don't agree with necessarily all of his assessments of the Trump administration. You know, I stand by him. He is a, a you know— devoted civil servant, and he was just doing his job. And you had, like, all these different people come out and say that. So the former foreign minister, Boris Johnson, who's also the front runner to be the next prime minister to replace Theresa May, he came out and basically said, yeah, this guy is a good guy, and, like, we need to find out who did these leaks, and blah, blah, blah. And so did Jeremy Hunt, who's his main opponent. But what was really important is what Boris Johnson in particular who everyone pretty much expects is going to be the next prime minister, what he didn't say. And so they had a debate, Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson. And this is like right as this is all going on. And the the moderators asked, like, would you promise to not fire this guy when you become prime minister? Will you keep the ambassador and like essentially stand up against Trump? And like Jeremy Hunt was like, yes, I will commit to like not firing this guy. And Boris was like, well. And he wouldn't say, no, I won't fire the guy. And it seems like that is the thing that actually pushed Derek to resign. Not necessarily like Trump saying you got to leave, but like the guy who's probably going to be his next boss and the next leader of the country not being willing to like have his back. So it's interesting, right? Because in the United States, most people don't know who the British ambassador is. But in Britain, for all the reasons Jen was just describing, this is a really, really, really big deal politically. Uh, and partially, as with all things Britain right now, the context is Brexit, right? When the UK finally exits the EU, if it ever does, it'll need to figure out some way to make up for the economic problems created by exit from the sort of free trading bloc um, if it doesn't get terms that it wants. So that would mean essentially 
trying to make up trade with other countries and other trading blocs, the U.S. being the most important one. Brexiteers have long promised that there would be a free trade deal with the United States after Brexit that would help improve Britain's economy. But obviously, Trump isn't the biggest fan of free trade deals, and he's very mercurial and personal, easily personally insulted. So if you're the next prime minister, you don't want to insult the U.S. president. But if you're unduly deferential to the president, you look kind of embarrassing in the eyes of a lot of your constituents. You look like you're playing like a really distinct subordinate role to the United States in this context. Yeah, and there's a reason why a bunch of British people lately have started to come out on, on social media and say that now the UK is somewhat of a you know, hashtag vassal state of the US because if Trump doesn't like your ambassador, that ambassador has to go. Uh, that And so there's sort of this feeling, and there are even some headlines um, elsewhere, where you're starting to see that there's this feeling inside the UK that they are have to be overly deferential to the US because of who Trump is. And that's particularly problematic because, as, as Zach was explaining, if the UK leaves the EU, it will have to rely on the US for trade, for security, for a whole bunch of really other reasons. And you want that relationship to be a lot more symbiotic than vassal-y, right? Um, so for this to kind of happen, this is indicative not just of Trump's temperament, but it's also incredibly indicative of like where the US-UK relationship is right now and where it might actually kind of go even, get even worse down the line. Right. And I'm glad you made that point because what's really interesting is, you know, there's this phrase, the, the special relationship, right, that we use to describe like the really close US-UK relationship for decades and decades. Like we fought wars together, like side by side. And what's interesting is a lot of it is based on like Britain's own kind of perception of like we are an important ally for the United States. We are respected like, you know, the U.S. respects our military prowess and like our our intelligence. Like we work together on stuff. And it seems like it's a bit of a like a culture shock in a lot of ways to be like, oh, we're not like this like respected partner. We're literally like this vassal state, right? Like we're just being told what to do, like some little colony. And when you're Britain, you know, who used to actually like have an empire, I feel like there's also a bit of that, like it smarts a bit to see your leaders in some ways like kowtowing to the United States president rather than being like, no, like we're our own sovereign country. It was the opposite of what the UK sort of wanted in that in Love Actually scene, right? I don't know if you remember, but there was this moment um, where, like, played by Hugh Grant, the prime minister, like, tells off the American president, which I think was Billy Bob Thornton, about, like, you know, we will not do everything you say. We are not your uh, servant. No puppet, no puppet. Yeah, no puppet, no puppet. And yet here there's kind of like a puppet feeling. And so there is – I'm calling it the anti-love actually moment. I'm so glad you said that, Alex, because I kept seeing that on Twitter, and I'm not one of those people who, like, watches that movie every Christmas like people do. And I was like, what? Love actually? Thank you for explaining that, because all these British people were talking about it. I'm a very, uh, very hardcore Love Actually defender, except for the plot where that awkward British guy goes to the U.S. It's a great movie, and the people who dislike it hate fun and love. Yes, the point is that... You've, you've also seen another uh, line about the British political system and relationship with the U.S. come back up, which is that back during the Iraq War, Tony Blair was frequently accused of being George W. Bush's poodle for simply following his line on the invasion of Iraq. But if you look at social media... At least one British member of parliament has been referring to Boris Johnson on Twitter as Trump's poodle, right? It's already reiterating this historical 
kind of wound that British people have from feeling like they're subordinate to the United States and that they've been eclipsed by, uh, as Alex said, their former colony. I think I have sort of two main takeaways from here and tell me if you guys agree or disagree. I think takeaway one is this might have, what worries me most in the moment is that this will have a chilling effect on the way diplomats report back to their capitals about what is going on within the Trump administration. I mean, there are ways to keep things secret and very clearly this was some probably leaked by someone who did not like the Mayed government and is and wants to kind of have a more Trump-friendly government in place, probably a Boris Johnson. So that's one possibility. But in this case, they, usually these things don't really leak other than like that WikiLeaks thing, right, where there was still a cooling of this kind of reporting. But all this to say, I think we can expect, which is a bad thing, embassies to not report as truthfully or as hard-hitting in a way back to their capitals. So I think that's sort of one. Number two, which I hope is a a hopeful message, is that like the U.S.-U.K. relationship will survive this, right? I mean, it is a big deal in the U.K. It's, uh, It's somewhat of a big deal here, but like London and Washington aren't going to stop being friends. Yeah, look, the the takeaway that we want you to have before we go to the break is that the U.S. and the U.K. relationship will survive this. The special relationship is not disappearing in any practical sense. But it does illustrate that, one, the U.K. is in a precarious political situation, and two, that this is not the way the United States is supposed to be treating its allies and friends, and that has uh, potentially significant down-the-line consequences for America's role in the world even if it won't torpedo the special relationship in the short term. So now we're going to take a break. uh, And afterwards, we're going to talk about the very exciting outcome of the Women's World Cup. I believe that we will win. Okay, welcome back, everybody. We are now going to talk about more evidence of U.S. dominance over the U.K. Sorry, British listeners. The Women's World Cup. So the United States, as you probably know, won for a second time in a row. It's it's the fourth championship overall that the U.S. women's team has won. It's a giant deal. It's it's a really one of the greatest accomplishments in America's international sports history. And there's an interesting backstory here, I think, one that really speaks to gender politics and sports and politics globally. Um, Jen, I don't want to skip over you, but Alex, as the noted soccer lover in this situation... Uh, Why don't you start us off? Sure. My favorite subject in the world. Okay. So there's been a lot of questions about why is Team USA so good at soccer when the men are so bad? (laughs) Uh, So let's start with some global reasons. The first is there's political science to show that in societies where women are considered more equal in the society, where they have more opportunities, they tend to do better at sports generally and soccer specifically. Uh, And so, for example, countries like the U.S., Canada, France, Germany, uh, England, now, these are all soccer powers. There are more. And um, countries like Iran, Iraq, um, Sudan, etc., these do not either have soccer programs or not particularly very good. There are some outliers, like China has a very good team, but not particularly great for for women's empowerment. Okay, so, like, that's really fascinating. So, it's not just, like— so it's sports in general, but like why soccer specifically of all the sports are women particularly good at? Like why soccer? Yeah, fair question. So the first is it is the global game, right? Every country really loves soccer or enjoys soccer. And so people flock to it. Well, the U.S. less so, except in well, the women's case, which we'll talk about. Exactly. 
And the other is that there's, to use the fancy sort of economics term, low barrier to entry, which therefore means it's fairly easy for women around the world to just play soccer. You can just grab a ball and make makeshift posts, and then you can just, like, play in the backyard or on the street or whatever. As opposed to, like, gymnastics or something when you need, like, all this equipment and training and stuff, right? Precisely. Okay, got it. Yeah, exactly. So reason number one, in societies where women have more equality, so to speak, they tend to do better in sports and soccer specifically, the U.S. being one of them. Reason number two why the women are so dominant in the U.S. is because other countries until actually relatively recently didn't really allow women to play sports. Uh, Even countries like England, Brazil, for example, until roughly the 70s banned women from playing soccer. They saw it more as a men's sport. Um, And we'll get to it in a bit, but in the U.S. that we've never really had that feeling. In fact, USA. And so those are the two global reasons there. One, equality, and two, other countries have fallen behind because they banned women from playing sports where the U.S. did not. Um, But the U.S. also has done some things legislatively, domestically, that other countries haven't. One of the rare areas in which the United States is ahead of the curve on social equality issues, specifically Title IX, the legislation mandating that there be some level of equality in school funding for sports between men's and women's teams. Uh, Soccer teams were a particular beneficiary Uh, of Title IX, the reason being that you could get lots of women on a soccer team, and therefore you wouldn't have to start up a lot of different smaller teams if you're a university with limited resources. You start up your soccer team, right? And then then you get parity in terms of the number of people participating on the men's and women's side. And so you had by this, this crazy situation where the U.S., population of girls playing soccer and then going into the professional pipeline was ballooning relative to other countries, even other countries with relatively high levels of gender egalitarianism. Um, And so when the first Women's World Cup was held in 1991, the U.S. was already a powerhouse. So what the story brings us now is women have, or young girls in the U.S. are allowed to play soccer. Luckily, there's an infrastructure for them to play soccer through high school, through college, which a lot of other countries do not have that kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, feeder system into the national team. And then on top of that, as Zach said, in 1991, the U.S. wins the first ever Women's World Cup. And uh, then the big change happens in 1999 when the U.S. wins the third ever. And it's still considered one of the a sea change, really, in women's soccer in the U.S. Um, you may remember the names Mia Hamm, for example. She was the best player in the world at the time. And Brandy Chastain, who scored the winning penalty kick goal and had that famous photo of her with the sports bra that caused a firestorm for all kinds of reasons. That led to an explosion again in young girls wanting to play soccer in the U.S., and created a, a fascinatingly large talent pool from which to choose from, right? Because soccer, you only need 11 players on the field with three to four substitutions, depending on the game. So you really need to just find the best couple, you know, 20-plus players to have on the field and on the bench. If you have as large a pool, statistically speaking, you're going to have better players. And with that infrastructure, you're going to have a good team. Yeah, so uh, I just want to, you know, acknowledge the irony here that, like, on a podcast with two dudes and and one female, uh, the two guys are, like, super excited about this women's sports thing. And I am like, yeah, cool, sport ball. Um, but, like, I do take the point that, like, maybe not for me, but for a lot of girls, at, you know, and who become women, like, this was a really, like, inspirational thing. I knew, you know, tons of friends in you know elementary school, junior high, high school that, that did go play soccer. And it was really cool. Uh, BuzzFeed went to the ticker tape parade in New York that they had um, when the the women's team came home, and they interviewed some some young girls who were you know like twelve, thirteen, fourteen, um, who had literally like 
skipped soccer practice to come to this parade and see like their heroes. There's this one girl, she's 13, and she says about the team, they're like rock stars. So like they're literally like idols and rock stars to these girls. And and then they like went on to be like, yeah, you know, uh Rapino, like I like her. Like she stands up for what she believes in and doesn't cater herself to others. She's just herself and she scores goals. Like these kids are so amazing. And you can see like how you know, I can get how this is like a thing that like feeds all these girls and it just kind of becomes this like machine of like more people want to do it because it's cool and then like your friends are doing it and like you get into it. Sorry that I didn't. I feel kind of left out now. The 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 thing that's going to happen likely over the course of time is that the United States will not be able to maintain uh, this edge. Like in men's basketball where the U.S. was dominant until more recently when it's still pretty dominant but other countries have started to catch up, you will start to see other countries build up and invest in women's soccer in the way that the U.S. has. And we won't have this pipeline advantage that we've had for such a long time with girls getting into it really early. But uh, I think probably, right, that's net good for the game internationally. The more women's soccer is competitive, the more girls you have getting into this elite sport, whereas Megan Rapino shows, you can really serve as a, as a leader and an inspiration to younger girls who want to participate, not just in soccer, but in politics and society more broadly. She's been quite political, and that seems to have had an effect from the article Jen was reading from on a lot of young American girls. Which, like, hell yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, my main message for this is continue to dominate Team USA. I hope we do. I know the Europeans especially are catching up, but want, congratulations, you won. It's an amazing sports feat. And uh, number two, keep kicking butt. Sports feet, get it, because they kick the ball with their feet. Ah. And I just want to say, you all may have noticed that we didn't address one of the most interesting and talked about issues surrounding the women's soccer team, which is the the pay disparity, right? The gender pay disparity. But lucky you, our sister podcast today explained did an entire episode specifically on that issue. So we'll link to it in the show notes. Definitely go check it out for that piece of the story. And that's our show for today. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, uh, and some special assistance from another producer, Jeffrey Geld. I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review to Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. 